Merbu- <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> first step out of the gate. Okay, let's breathe first. Close your eyes and breathe. Air in, deep from stomach, and then out. But then don't hear you breathing. Come on, really breathe. Breathe in. Out. Now open your eyes and ask me a question. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with performance artist Marina Abramovich about her career and her long-durational projects. You go through the transformation that when you start it, you're in one state of mind. When you finish it, something else happens. Here's Debbie Millman. Marina Abramovich once said that she only learns from things she doesn't like. Pain, silence, blood. Over her nearly 50-year career... She has chased after her fears, testing the limits of her mind and body. She has methodically cut the skin between her fingers and on her abdomen. She has screamed until she has no voice. And she has sat silently for 736 hours, looking into the eyes of strangers. Marina's performance challenges audiences with uncomfortable and illuminating experiences, and she has permanently changed the way the world sees and understands performance art. Today, I'm going to talk to Marina Abramovich about her career, her life as art, and her incredible body of work. Marina Abramovich, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. Marina, I have to confess, there was a big part of me that was tempted to sit here staring at you without speaking one word for the duration of our interview. But I decided against it as I have too many questions for you. But also it would be interesting how we would do this with radio. Well, how sort of John Cage-like, right? Just an occasional breath or a cough. <laughs> I know, but the problem is that John Cage did it already. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are really forced to do this interview. <laughs> Real words, real question, real answer. Yes. When you were four years old, you were walking in the forest with your grandmother, and you saw something very strange, a straight line across the road. You were very curious and went over to touch it, which caused your grandmother to scream. Can you talk about what you were mesmerized by and how that impacted you? It was one of the first uh, experience that how I confront the fear. But the fear was not the moving object, it was actually a huge snake. It was the scream of the grandmother. So that fear embodied my, in somehow in my memory because she was afraid of the snake. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have this yet experience. And this is so strange later on thinking about how the children actually get fear from the parents, from the society, from things already experienced, but they didn't have this direct experience themselves. And with my life was all about direct experience later on. I thought it was ironic because the night before you were born, your mother dreamed she was giving birth to a giant snake. 
I think the snakes have followed me all the way through. And in a way, later on in my life, I was, as everybody else, afraid of snakes. So I decided to make the performance by putting, you know, five snakes on my body. And um, which is interesting, but snakes, they follow the geotic energy of the earth. So I was thinking, what if I'm this earth and I will put them on my body and they will just follow my own energy? But just before, uh, you know, the audience came, the trainer who uh, hold the snakes put very big black constructor around my, my head. And she, he told me, if anything happened, if she fall down or she will go around your neck, please don't change your breathing pattern because she will really strangulate you. And I could not do anything about it because the muscle is so strong. And it happened that somehow I moved the head and she really fell on my neck. This is just before public came. And she started really tightening up. And of course, a panic is a natural kind of, you know, the, the yeah, reaction. Yeah, a constrictor yeah, constricting her on you. It's, and yeah. then he screamed on me and he said, breathe slowly. And it was incredible experience to actually in panic calm down and bring slowly and I really succeed and then she just kind of released slowly because I'm for her the tree nothing else but my own fear will actually kill me so I understood that and then you know then she just went around the, the body and the public arrived it was pretty strong experience before even the performance happened I believe you also learned how to swim when your father threw you into a lake when you were six years old. How did you survive that? Actually, it was the sea. <laughs> the sea, even worse. But, you know, my father learned me to swim first. And uh, I was, you know, swimming with my, you know, water just in my knee. So I actually, he, for me, in his opinion, I could swim. But I was afraid of deep and big sea. So he took me on the little roaring boat. And in the middle of the sea, he took me like a little dog and just put me, you know, into the sea. And, and then rode away. And rode away. Well, at 100 meters, and I absolutely panicked. I went down under the water and I swallowed the water and I was drowning. And then I come up again and he didn't look. And I could not believe that my father didn't care that I just can die. And I got more water and more panic. And I got so angry. I said, I don't want to die. And I actually started swimming. And he still didn't turn back. And he heard me coming in. And when he heard me coming in, he just, he just extended his arm and just put me into the, into the boat. But, you know, I'm still afraid of deep sea. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, do you think he would have left you to die? I don't know. You know, my parents are both national heroes and... And uh, been in the war and been so tough, I, I have no idea. You know how Eskimos, they, what they do with their children when they're just born, six, seven months, they make the hole in the water and they put the rope and they, if the kid can't hold the rope above the water, he just drown. And they just, in that way, keep the strongest. I mean, that's pretty brutal selection of nature. So I'm not sure what he will do. I still don't know. You've written quite a lot about your parents being war heroes. You've written about how they fought against the Nazis with the Yugoslav partisans and how, after the war, they became important members of the party with important jobs. Your father was appointed to Marshal Tito's elite guard, and your mother was the director of the Museum of Art and Revolution. But, Marina, they were also quite brutal with you. You were punished frequently, and the punishments were almost always physical. You were hit until you were black and blue. 
why did they treat you like this? My best uh, memories is being with my grandmother till I was six years old. And my, my grandmother was deeply religious. I was constantly in a church with her. And my parents was like a strangers coming to just give me some presents, which I didn't like. And I would give them away because I never play with the objects. I just play with shadows and things like that and invisible beings. And uh, when my brother was born, I was six years old, I was brought to, to my parents' home. And everything becomes so brutal and horrible. I, I don't remember my mother ever kissed me in my entire life. And when I was 35 years old, I made an interview with my mother and I asked her, but why you never kissed me? And she was so surprised at this question. She said, of course I didn't kiss you. My mother never kissed me either, just, just not to spoil you. But that not being kissed in love actually affected my entire life for a long, long time. And this is maybe reason why I never want to have family, never have two children. And, you know, I really, um, the whole world, I give the love to the, my public that become actually that imaginary mother in a certain way. Talk about the invisible beings. You've had an extremely spiritual life. Uh, you've been trained and have sat with monks and Buddhists, the Dalai Lama. Talk about how these invisible beings have impacted you. But I have to start really from really young childhood. I had this uh, cupboard we call placar, but this is like a deep cupboard that you go in. And I, when it comes to dark, I would at this invisible being come out and I will see them. And I think this is not just something special for me. I think the old children do that. All children play with the teddy bears and, and the dolls and they become really like real, real things. And then later on when they grow up, they kind of, you know, dismiss this whole thing. But that invisible beings for me was so real in that time and also spending my entire time in a church with my grandmother. I remember really funny funny story that, uh, you know, she would just go and pray and left me just sitting there on the bench. And I remember looking at the people coming to the church and there is a big um, uh, kind of, um, how you call it, a niche with the water. And they will always go there and put their fingers and cross themselves and they will go to pray. So I was thinking, oh my God, what if I drink all this water, I will become holy. I was like, I don't know, four years or five years old. So I put the chair there. My grandmother was in the front, didn't see any of this. And I drink all this water. I got so sick. I got diarrhea. I think it was like so many dirty hands there. But anyway, I didn't become holy. But I was always busy with this invisible being, with levitation, with appearances of of the, you know, strange aliens coming from the space. So I have a very strong imagination. And I will play with the shadows of the of the on the wall or I will go under the blanket and make shadows myself. But objects never interest me. That was so interesting that also in the later life I find the performance tool as the best because it doesn't really require objects. To me I was always interested in energy. Do you believe in God? No. I definitely don't believe in God. I don't believe in kind of God sitting up there with the beard. But I believe in the energy. I believe in the energy and I believe in the certain energy that we don't understand, but, you know, can come through us sometimes, which, you know, causes us to see things, uh, open our intuition. You know, intuition is very important, that kind of gut feeling that come from nowhere. Sometimes you will just walk in the park, not even busy with ideas, and out of nowhere, something will come in your mind and say, oh my God, this is the right thing. You know, that's how the Einstein you know, the inventor relativity theory. It was didn't invented uh, sitting in his laboratory. 
just something came from outer space. I believe that the knowledge, which I call the, this kind of universal knowledge, exists everywhere. Is that the liquid knowledge? Yeah, that we actually can tap into that knowledge, which is available. But we have to create stillness in ourselves to be able to get to this type of uh, of um, of knowledge. My cousin is a social worker and works quite a lot with children that have been brutalized and has told me that often children that have been really hurt physically and emotionally often have a very keen sense of perception and intuition because they're constantly on guard around their surroundings to be able to perceive what might be a threat. And I'm wondering if that, that early brutalization actually helped to create your really deep sense of uh, the world around you and and people and feelings and sort of the deep emotional connection that you seem to have with your audience. I think I was deeply hurt because I was unloved. And then I was actually creating my own world. And that own world was my protection against this other world, which I didn't like and love. And I was afraid of that kind of outside world. So, you know, I remember reading the books. I was so much reading. Books was like, for me, huge exit to this other world. I remember reading Dostoevsky and not literally coming out of the house till I finished the whole thing. So the reality of the book became more reality than real life. I identified with the, with the characters and, and I will be inside the book. And it's so funny that I still now, even I go to see something which is good movie or good theater piece, they do the same. I have this ability to kind of go in. And when I start teaching, because I've done lots of teaching in different parts of the world, I've done this same with my students. I will see their world, and then I will enter their world, and I can give them the best criticism about their own work without actually putting myself into it. And that's and I always was thinking that um, it's very important, the ability to actually get out of yourself and then go back again. You've said this about your childhood. I was so ashamed of myself and my family, of the complete lack of love in my household. And that feeling of shame was like hell. Was that what first drew you to art? You know, I don't know, because probably that inner world. First of all, I dreamt a lot. My dreams was very vivid. I had dreams in color. I had the dreams that I fall in a dream and I and then I dream in another dream and, and I remember dreaming the one house that I would always go to and the house is in the forest and the people there is always permanent party and everybody was happy and they want to see me and there would alternative be, reality and there would be like a occurring dream that would come for you know in different periods of my life and then it was a period that didn't have this dream for maybe a year and then I dream again the same house and I was so happy to go back but all people got very old. And I was thinking, that's not possible. With dream, you can get old in a dream. I was thinking the dream is like, you know, you never change. And that dreams was my big source of material to paint. So as a young child, I was painting. All what I was painting was my dreams. It was given to me. I was nothing to actually to look for any other subject. I would go to sleep, and sleep was like a work. I dreamed the dream, I wake up and paint. You were a very creative child. You also made your own clothes from curtains. Your parents were willing to spend money on paint for you, but not for pretty clothes. 
you know, this was so terrible. I never got any present that I really wanted. My, I hated my birthdays because, you know, as a child, you know, as, as, as a young girl, I would, look, I would love to have, you know, something that other children and girls will have and I will never get it. My mother will always give me for birthday flannel pajama who was <laughs> at least three numbers bigger and she with the horrible prints and she always said it will shrink with the wash and it did, never did. And I hated it. I hated it so much that, you know, it was just never really, it was never really getting something that I really want. And also another thing that whatever my achievement was, even later on, is really I achieved a lot in my life. Uh, till my mother, you know, got sick and had the Alzheimer and died, I could never impress her by anything because always somebody was better and always somebody achieved more. And I remember when we was like 12 or 14 in the school, my brother was six years younger. If I get good notes, my mother will go to the professor and say, this is not possible. She didn't do anything. I have to question her more. And then of course, she, he would question me more. I would get bad notes. And she would be like satisfied. You see, you didn't work. It was never enough. It was never, I will never achieve anything. After and, she uh, died and, and you read her diaries, you were really surprised by her inner life. Yeah, it, you know, if I knew one page of her diaries before she died, my relation to her would be totally different. She was very emotionally uh, hurt woman, and uh, it was terrible. She was so emotional in her diaries, and she was so hardcore outside. And I think that she wanted to make the warrior out of me. She wanted to make the soldier. When I was, you know, sleeping in the bed, she would wake me up because my bed was too messy. I mean, in the middle of the sleep to well, make you were the making, bed. You were moving while you were sleeping. <laughs> so now when I go to hotels, you know, I will sleep and people in the morning think that I didn't even been in the room because it sleeps very straight. I'm so well trained. I just don't move. But it was interesting that on the other side, she was so emotional and so hurt. And I think the only way that she can make me strong is to be that way. But, you know, looking back now, everything what happened in my life, I think that what I am now, I actually will not want to be any other way. Because it's so interesting when you look at the art and artists and art history. You know, artists suffer a lot in, the, in their life. Nobody make anything from happiness. Happiness is a state that you just like to be and why to change. Actually, happiness leads you to laziness. <laughs> laziness. And, and actually, suffering is a creative process. Depression is a sickness. That's something else, you know, and it should be treated. But the suffering is like a teaching, you know, you learn and, and then you, in my work, every kind of work I've been doing is, it's really about transformation of one state to another state and learning all the process. And now, you know, I'm this year, now in November, I'm 71 and I say, I never want to go back when I was 20 or 30 or 40. It was so much suffering. Now I really know, you know, things, you become wise and you can enjoy life so much more. I was recently reading an article that uh, Seth Godin pointed me to about the difference between happiness and pleasure. And the article stated that with pleasure, we just want more and more and more and more. We just can't yeah. get enough. We want more pleasure, more pleasure. But happiness is actually when you feel like you have enough. Yeah. And and I thought that was pretty profound because I think we're all actually chasing pleasure in the guise of happiness. But again, you know, to think about Buddhists, especially Tibetans, which I really can relate a lot, you're attached to happiness. But happiness is not permanent, like everything is impermanent. 
and uh, and then you know you stop the happiness you have to suffering and then you come happiness and you suffer so it's like endless attachment to one or another and it's important that things you take how the temporary they are and not actually attached to any of this. You know, I, had, I was in India somewhere. I have this philosopher, which I like very much, and he wrote some beautiful books. And every time I travel in India, I see him in, in ashrams, Krishnamurti or this ashram. He's always traveling. And then one day I wanted to send him something, the book of mine. And I said to him, you know, can you give me your permanent address? And he looked at me so surprised. He said, how, you know, to send him the book. I said, how I can give you permanent address when I'm impermanent? Mm. And I said, that's a good point. <laughs> well, impermanence sort of brings me back to your first art lesson. You received your first painting lesson from the artist Filo Filipovich. Perfect uh, pronunciation. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I've been practicing. Um, he was one of your father's friends. Can you share what happened in that first lesson for our listeners? Filo Filipovic was actually a soldier in my father's battalion. And uh, so when the war, you know, stopped, he became uh, an abstract painter. And my father really didn't have nothing with art much to do. And uh, when I was 14, I wanted to have the oil painting because I was just doing watercolors and, you know, crayons. But the oil was like, oh, my God, this, this is like another step to be a serious painter. So I asked my father, this is my wish for birthday. A part of the big pyjama who never shrink, you know, that's always there. <laughs> but, but a part of this. So he s- called his friend, uh, you know, at that time and said, you know, she won that. I don't know where to go, what to buy. So he came with us to shop. So we got all these boxes of paint and canvases and lots of stuff. And I had a little room, you know, in uh, in the house where I called my studio. And... Uh, he gave me his first lesson. So he take the canvas, but he didn't put the canvas on the frame. He just cut it irregularly, put on the floor. And then, uh, remember, he was an abstract painter. So he um, take the one can and put some glue, just kind of spread over it. And then on the depth of the top of the glue, some cement from another can. And then he put, um, you know, red pigment and yellow pigments, a little bit of blue, some white. And then he sprayed turpentine over all the stuff. Take the match, put on this whole thing, and everything explodes. Literally explodes in my front of my eyes. And he looked at it and said, okay, this is sunset. And he left. <laughs> so this is the first painting lesson. I was 14. This is very impressive for me. So I didn't know what to do. So I couldn't even move because it was in the middle of the room. I wait for a few weeks to get the whole thing dry. And then very carefully... I. I just painted, put it with four nails on my wall. And by that time it was August and I went with my parents to vacation. And I came back and, uh, you know, there was a, a window on the other opposite side of the room and it was actually getting straight light into the and sun, into the painting. So everything, the glue just melted and it was a pile of dust on the floor and um, nothing was left. And later on, thinking about first lesson was so important for me because I was thinking really about process in performance was more important than actually ending the piece. Ending was, it was not about result, it was about the process. And then thinking about Yves Klein who talked about the, that his painting was just ashes of his art and uh, talking of Jackson Pollock who actually in his diaries he said when he, he, in his mind he was doing figurative painting because he was pouring paint in the air 
with the gesture of making words and making figures, but only when they fall down, they become abstract. So this whole thing, you know, that lesson kind of opened completely another world because it was not traditional in any way. But then I went to academy, traditional, I have to paint, you know, the still lives and models and everything else. You're quite a good painter. Yeah, actually, I paint this a lot <laughs> in those days, and I and I and you know I was completely inside the painting till one day I stopped. As you were continuing to paint on your own, you had an experience that changed your approach to making art forever. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story of seeing the twelve military jets and how that resulted in your future realizations about what art could and should be. Because as I said, you know, in the beginning, very young, I painted my dreams. And uh, my first exhibition, I was 14. And I was so jealous of Mozart. He started at seven. And I was already 14. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Competitive even then, Marina. Huh? I, yeah, I just kind of could not take it. But, you know, <laughs> it's better early than ever. And then I, um, and that after the dreams, I started painting, you know, the truck accidents. And then after this, I turned from the, from the, looking to the ground into the sky and I would start painting clouds. And then I develop all this kind of, um, theory about the clouds. I, clouds who are coming, clouds who are, um, disappearing, clouds who are hitting the human bodies, black holes, projections, shadows of the clouds and so on. So it's just all universe in the sky. And one day I was lying on the field and just looking at the sky and, just always studying clouds. But this particular moment, there was completely blue sky. There was nothing at all. And by waiting in the clouds, they arrive out of nowhere, 12 ultrasonic military planes. And with such a force, and they create this, you know, how the air passed, they create this, this uh, drawing in the sky. And I was fascinated. I was looking at this drawing, and in the front of my eyes, this drawing was disappearing and become blue sky again. And I think I had some kind of realization in that moment, really. I stood up from this grass and I said to myself, I will never go to studio again. I will never paint again. I will never do something which is two dimensional, where entire world opened to me. You know, being an artist, you can make things from anything. You can make things from dust. You have this miracle possibilities. I can use my body. I can use the fire, the air, the planes, the, you know, whatever. So I went immediately to the military base and asked uh, the, there the, the major if he can give me 12 planes to paint my drawings in the sky. He called immediately my father and said, you, your daughter is insane. <laughs> I mean, you know how much cost for military planes to do her shit? So they throw me away. And then from that point, I start thinking of projects, mostly I could not realize, some I did, and that actually was abstract. It was not anymore involving the canvas or paint. It was really working with sound. I remember one project that I wanted to put the big speakers on the bridge with the bridge collapsing. So the idea was you're standing on the bridge, visually you see him, with sound the bridge don't exist. Again, I have to go to city mayor hall to you know, ask for permission. Again, they throw me out because they say from vibration the bridge actually can really fall. So this was not possible. Then I put the speakers on the house where I live. That was only for a few minutes because, you know, the, the, the people who live in the other floors run out thinking there was bombing or something. So it was a really big scandal. Oh, it was difficult. <laughs> you also did one with um, 
recording a loop playing the same airport announcements over and over. I thought that was ironic, given that at that point in your life, you hadn't really traveled much, but were recording airport announcements. You know, at that time in ex-Yugoslavia, you could travel. It was not politically close country at all. We were socialists by that time, but we didn't have any penny to travel. We, we didn't have money to travel at all. So we, we have passport without money, so it was useless. So I had this student capital center place where we would come, you know, the students to go to see the film, to read the books, to have a coffee, you know, just kind of big hall. And I was saying, okay, if we can't travel, you know, physically, we can travel mentally. So I put the speakers there in this huge hall. Every three minutes, one was an announcement saying, in, you know, in that time, the our aeroport had the three gates. So my announcement was like that. He said, please, the passengers of the Yugoslav airline yacht can have to go immediately <laughs> to the gate 347 and the plane is leaving to Tokyo, Beijing, and Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong was like, wow. He really uh, so, threw that one out. So everybody who was sitting there for any other reason become this imaginary passenger of this trip. So this was the way to leave. <laughs> you studied with the painter Christo Hedjedujic? Oh, that's really badly pronounced. <laughs> let me try to tell you. Christo Hegedušić. Difficult, these Slavic names. Yeah, I, know. I tried. Um, and he felt that if you're a good artist, you might have one good idea. But if you're a genius, you might have two, period. And you think he was right and have said that you've had only one good idea. Which idea was that? One good idea is really working with my own body. Because the body is universe. You know, everything what we have in the body is the microcosmos and everything reflecting to macrocosmos. So it's such a huge research. You know, that we think that we um, know, you know, that we use 30% of brain. But I talked to some scientists recently and they said it's completely not true. We use just 12%. Really? Yeah. And the rest is completely unknown territory. So it's so much to do with the body. So that was mine. But he also said one more thing that I really loved, Christo Hegedusic. He said to me, if you're um, drawing with your right hand and you become better and better and better, that you can even if you close eyes, you know, just do whatever you want with right hand, immediately change to the left because that's the danger of repetition. You start doing something that you know so well, so you stop learning and you stop risking going to the different territory. And I think it for an artist is very important failure. Failure is such a great territory to learn because if you don't risk, you will never go anywhere. But to risk, you can fail. So to include the failure in your own process of work, it's essential. Repetition figures prominently in the engagement of your work. You're not doing the same thing from project to project, but you're often examining body slapping towards each other or into each other or staring at someone over and over. Talk about what that means, these long durational projects that you do, what your emotional and spiritual experience is as you go through those durations or those repetitions. But there are two different questions here. You know, the, let's say when you give examples, slapping or screaming, or that's actually, we are going to the physical limits there. 
and they're mostly not long because you go till you can. And I don't know, you can go 30 minutes or 40 or one hour and, and then you just physically can't. But the two ones who involved the mental kind of ex- exercises, like the one where the artist is present, this takes much longer and this takes a long period of time, like three months. So when you take that kind of experiences, then performers stop being performers because you can't pretend anymore. Even in one hour, you can still pretend. But three months, the, everything dropped down. So the performers become life itself. And when performers become life itself, then you really deal with the truth, with the reality here and now. And this is so essential. So later on, to me, long durational performances are absolutely the most important, transformative kind of material, you know, to think about. But now what I'm more and more thinking that actually it's not enough that public is just observing and being, you know, looking at. Public have to be part of something. And then I, after the artist is present, I create this whole new set of work, which I call Abramovich Method, which I have to give the public the tools that actually can go with their own experience. And this is essential because then only they can understand this long duration. How the public, without being prepared, can see something which is almost nothing. You know, what you see, two people sitting, or you see maybe light passing, shadow, and, and the night is coming. It's very simple. How you can kind of connect with that kind of time only if you understand your consciousness, your pattern of breathing and stillness. So you have to get into the stillness in order to understand stillness. You've written about the artist Bruce Nauman's statement that art is a matter of life and death and have stated that this is exactly how it was for you even at the beginning. Art was life and death. There was nothing else. You considered it very serious and very necessary. At that time, did you feel that you had to sacrifice anything to pursue the life of an artist? I felt that I had to sacrifice absolutely everything. And just the citat of Bruce Nauman, is, he said, really, I, I'm going to tell you exactly, he said, the artist is, is the question of life and death. Maybe sounds melodramatic, but it's also true. Yes, sounds melodramatic, say, oh, my life, and, you know, it's big words. But when you take that serious, that then really you get to some point of experience and transformation because the performance is about transformation. You go through the transformation. When you start it, you're in one state of mind. When you finish it, something else happens. But if you're really there with your body and your mind, because, you know, you can stand in the front of the public with your body and your mind is in, I don't know, Honolulu, and public feel this. Public feel the fear, feel insecurity, feel when you're not there. So you have, and public have to actually be there in the same time, in the same space, and to create this energy dialogue. Public and the performer complete the work. Performer without public, there's nothing, there's nothing is happening. So have to be this too. You know, I, I, I always said, and the Martha Graham said one thing that I always like. She said, wherever dancer dance is the holy ground. And I change into the, something else. I say to that whatever public stand for me is a holy ground because every single person in the public is important. Even if I do the lecture and I'm talking and I see somebody leave, maybe he's just go to the toilet, I have to see if he come back. If he didn't come back, something energetically I'm doing wrong. You have to have this tension. That's what it's all about. I'd like to talk with you about some of your early performance pieces. But before we go into specific pieces, I 
saw a lecture of yours where you shared what your definition of performance art is. And I was wondering if you can share that with our listeners. So, you know, you ask many artists and many artists will tell different things. You know, it's so interesting that so many artists told me, you know, when they're performing, they don't even see the public, they don't feel public, they don't, you know, they're just into their own world. In my case, it's totally different. You know, I could never do performance at home because I also never rehearse my performances. If I rehearse any of them, I will never do it because they're bloody complicated and difficult and I don't like pain anyway. At home, I do anything with this. You know, I don't like. But what you need with the, when you have the concept, you have to count on the energy of the audience who give to you in order to push you, your limits much farther. Same with raw concert, you know. You have the, this incredible energy which the audience give to the, to the singer and then he, you know, he can perform in his best. Same with performance. So for me, definition of performance is um, mental and physical structure which you create in specific time and specific place where energy dialogue happen. You know, you have to determine this is the space and I'm going to be there one month. So whatever happened this period, outside of this, it's not your control. You are there no matter what. But if earthquakes come, if the electricity stops, if a tsunami happens, whatever, is the part of the work. You can't predict it, but you have to be there. That's it. Rhythm 10 was first performed in Edinburgh in 1973 and was based on a drinking game played by Russian and Yugoslav peasants. Of your piece, you spread out your fingers on a white piece of paper and stabbed a knife down as quickly as possible in the spaces between your fingers. Every time you cut yourself, you picked up another of one of your 10 knives and repeated the routine. You taped your groans as you cut yourself. And when you were finished with all 10 knives, you replayed the tape and started the routine again, trying to nick yourself in time with the previous accidents. And you said that you were terrified beforehand, but the second you began, your fear evaporated. Marina, how did that happen? How were you feeling as you did this piece? It was a completely crazy idea. You know, You know, I'm young. I, we are talking 20, 21, you know, 19. I'm doing this very young, very, you know, dedicated. My idea was how you can put time present and time past with the mistake together. Uh, so so that loop. was a, a this time was, loop. Yeah, and then when I actually only missed twice and I taped everything on the tape recorder, I left the tape recorder with this double sound as the only reminder of installation. So that's the, the about the piece. And it's called Rhythm 10. But, um, uh, you know, for me, every time before I do anything, you know, it can be lecture, it can be any kind of public event or performance. I'm terrified. I have always this feeling in the stomach. I mostly go to the toilet and sit there for a while. You know, it's like I just, I just have feel secure in the bathroom. But, you know, it's feeling of, 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 I don't know, of nervousness. At the moment I come in the front of the public, magically disappear. But, if I don't feel nervous, I will be panicking why I'm not feeling nervous because then something is wrong. I feel that. It's, it's, it never stopped. You know, even now, I, you know, I've done so many times, especially the public talks. I'm talking, you know, I have the lectures, 3,000 people. It's kind of lots of people and I'm terrified. But the second I'm there, it's like gone, 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 gone. And then some kind of other energy take place. You know, and there's another important thing, not to prepare 
the problem is repetition with artists when they get very lazy and become repeating the same thing, blah, 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 again. And the very important thing is that you always remember to surprise yourself. Never mind the public, but yourself have to surprise. So for me, like my best talks are when I not prepare at all, I stand in the front of the public and I feel I just silence. And then somehow that energy comes into me and just happened. One of the best conversations I had recently was with Laurie Anderson. And, you know, we, we had the lunch before. I said, what are we going to do? I said, okay, this is our rules. Don't have any subject to talk. Don't prepare any visuals. I don't know what's going to happen. I said, perfection. So we went there, two of us, and the public was there. And we say, we start like this. Is any questions? From the questions of the public become the talk. It becomes so organic, so natural. And that's what is interesting for me, that kind of, you know, unpredictable moments that actually your life, you're not kind of trained over and over to repeat your story. It requires faith, though, in showing up. But also age. That helps. <laughs> you get. You, when <laughs> you know, you can rely on yourself you, after a certain point. But, you know, it's interesting with, when you're a young artist, you're so afraid of this kind of things that you don't have props. Young artists need so much stuff around them. They need all projections and the music and this and other friends and whatever. And it's mostly mess. But when you start removing everything and it's just you and the public, that would magic happen. Because performance is time-based art. You have to be there to accept it, but also it's immaterial form of art. You know, for me, always the music is the absolutely highest form of art because it's nothing. The sound goes through you. Second is performance and then everything else. One of your next pieces where you actually did have a number of props was Rhythm Zero. Yes, but this performed. is, we are talking yes. 74. Absolutely, you know, 1974. This is young, unsecure artist. <laughs> well, this is an incredible piece. You play 72 objects on a table, including a rose, a razor, a pistol with a solitary bullet in it, a real bullet. And you invited the audience to do whatever they wanted to you over the following six hours. They started out rather kind and then became crueler. Can you talk a little bit about what happened? First of all, it's very important why they did this. You know, every performance have a reason. In that time, we're talking early 70s, performance was not seen as any part of art. You know, this was actually crucified. They were saying we are masochists, we are sadists. People thought you needed to be put in a psychiatric hospital. Exactly. And it was totally dismissing as any work. And then I was thinking, okay, if this is a kind of opinion of the public, general opinion of the people, what if I put the objects on the table for pleasure, but, you know, I put the rose, I put the shawl, I put beautiful things too. And then I put the chains and so and, and needles and knives and, and, and a real bullet with real pistol. I had the, the little text on the table saying, I'm an object. You can do anything on me if you want, you know, including killing me using the all objects and for six hours. So I give them permission basically to, to use anything. And I am not doing anything. I'm dressed and I'm standing there. So I'm not masochist. I'm not, I'm not sadist. I'm not doing anything. I'm just artist doing, standing there. And see, if you give complete freedom to the public, what will happen? After this performance, I knew one thing, that the public can kill you. I will never kill myself. I know it's my limits and I don't want to kill. I mean, love my life very much. But the public can kill you. This is so important. But also I learned from this performance one more thing. If you give the tools for the public to bring the spirit down, they will use it. But you also can give the tools to your public 
to lift the spirit, which took me 25 years to learn, and an artist is present, I give them the, just the chair. The spirit went somewhere else. But this was 25 years between these two pieces that I learned that lesson. Were you surprised at the time how cruel people could be? I mean, they ripped your clothing, they scratched you, you nearly got shot. If somebody hadn't interfered, you very likely would have gotten shot. Somebody pulled the gun away from the man that was that put it to your forehead. Yes, you know, I I prepare for this for this performance to be completely without will, which is not easy. So six hours, if you put my hand up, I will leave my hand up. If you, whatever you do, they will, they will carry me around. They will put me on the table, put knife between my legs. You know, it was so scary. All what I have to do is to just look in one point somewhere far away between all of this public and just be there like I am on their total disposal. But after six hours when they pass, and the galleries came and said, the time is over. It was two in the morning and I started walking to them. You know, I was half naked. I was full of blood. There was the people, you know, they give me rose, but then they cut the with knives, the clothes, and then they put thorns of the rose in my body. Then one cut and still a scar and drink my blood. I mean, it was unspeakable what people can do. And also it was very important, the, the time, because if I give them one hour, that would be just okay. But six hours, so people start kind of opening more and more and more and, you know, midnight pass and then become very, very difficult. One reason I was not raped because it was a normal gallery opening and people's coming with their wives. It was like, but then... The Do you th think if the wives weren't there, you would have gotten raped? You know, what was probably, but was what, what was very interesting also, the woman was not touching me, but they would tell men what to do to me, which was very, very scary too. But one thing would happen when six hours passed and I, the, the galleries came and see to me, now it's finished. So I become me and I start walking to them. And I was hell and mess. And, you know, they start running. The people literally run out of the gallery. And then they couldn't face you. And then they, and they, when I become, you know, normal human being, and then when they, you know, the next day they will call, they'll apologize, they don't know what happened, and so on. And I remember coming to the hotel and looking myself in the mirror, and I had a big piece of gray hair I just overnight. Your hair went gray overnight. Um, since then I paint. I hate gray hair. So <laughs> I, I saw pictures of you after that performance, and you looked absolutely emotionally shattered. It was amazing, amazing the experience. And, you know, I would never try that. I, I could, this is why I could never, you know, rehearse my performances. I have only concept and I never know how we'll finish and what. And I have the, I always have the, the timing. I have five hours, six hours, three hours, one hour. I always fix the timing. Only in early performances when I deal with pain, I could not fix timing because I will like screaming, slapping later on with Ulay. We will know how far we go because we didn't know where the limits. But I will never repeat that because I could never repeat in real life any of this. But the energy of the public is the essential. How were you able to manage your pain until you reached the so much pain, there is no pain threshold? By experiencing, you know, to stage pain in the front of audience and to go through painful experience, you become a mirror to the public. So if I have courage to do this, then you have the courage to, do, to deal with your own life. So that was like, you know, also the, the, the concept and idea. And the concept is not like, you know, kind of stupid masochism. Is the concept was to get rid of fear of pain, which I really succeed. So I understand pain and I can get rid of pain, of fear of pain. Then, you know, anybody else can do so is, is actually inspirational. <laughs> 
you mentioned Ulai um, in 1976. You met Ulai on a trip to Amsterdam and fell madly, passionately in love. And together you created the Relation Works Art Vital Manifesto, which stated, Art Vital, no fixed living space, permanent movement, direct contact, local relation, self-selection, passing limitations, taking risks, mobile energy. What were you seeking to do together at that time? You know, in my own work, I came kind of to the limit of how I use my body. So I met this man who I met on my birthday, and he said— You have the same birthday. It was his birthday. I said, wow, you know, so we both had the same birthday. We fall in love, and we spent 12 years living together. And one important thing, we would become these modern nomads. We live in the car because we didn't have money. Performance was no, mostly not ever paid. If they pay you for food and accommodation, there's something. So it was nothing, you know. We was uh, park the car in somewhere in the in the mountains and wake up, you know, five in the morning and milk the the, the sheep. And then the the, the we pe- make cheese and, and with the cheese and peasants will give us the cheese and, and sausage and bread and then we will I will knit all our clothes and stuff like that. It was really romantic and incredibly beautiful time. It was one of the times I will never forget. And uh, and then we was doing the work. It was just love and doing what you want to do with, regardless to every other concessions to the art market or anything. This was really absolutely no compromise in any way. I love that in the van you had a sign that said "Art is easy." This was this was the the absolutely you know sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> remark. <laughs> That's not easy. Some of your work together includes screaming at each other until you lost your voices, sitting in silence for hours or days at a time, slapping each other over and over. In your piece, Rest Easy, you held a massive bow and he pulled an arrow pointed at your heart and the piece lasted four minutes and 20 seconds, one false move, and again, you could have died. You said that in your artistic partnership, you were trying to leave ego behind, to leave masculinity and femininity behind, and to meld into a third party, which to you seemed like the highest form of art. Do you think control figured into any of the work? Yeah, of course, but it was the most important when we got together and we start working. As I said, I come really, I, I was like, like really going to the limit of my own work and getting together. That was like this all new energy. How two people can produce one male, one female work that actually doesn't in, involve the ego. And we melted something that we always, you know, mentioned by two names and we never actually reveal who have the idea because it didn't matter anymore. It was just unity. It was really strong, and I was always believing that two people can do more than one. So when our relation started falling apart, I hide from the world for three years. Nine years was incredible, and three years it was not. And I could not fa- actually face the failure. I could not f- face to say to even mind the most intimate friends, it's not working. We pretend it was working, and then finally fall apart in the Great Wall of China. And part of the walk... On the Great Wall of China, you had to pass through 12 provinces that were forbidden by foreigners. There were areas that were polluted by radioactivity. You've written about how you saw people tied to trees and left out to die as a form of punishment. You saw wolves eating corpses. This was a China nobody wanted to see, yet you were seeing it. Between that and the realization you were walking towards Ulai on this wall, and at which point when you met, your relationship would be over, 
It must have been unbearably sad. It was. Unbearably sad. It was really sad. And you know, the, later on, I made this theater piece, Life and Death of Marina Abramovich with Bob Wilson, which Willem Dafoe is playing uh, my father. I saw it. It's and, incredible. Uh, my, uh, an incredible piece. You know, Ulai and so And in one point, he said, I can't understand. Why could not just to make phone call? You know, say it's over. <laughs> Text each other. <laughs> you know, but they say, oh my God, never even crossed my mind. I think that that relation was so intense that also separation have to be so intense. So the Great Wall was like a way to go. After you and Ulai separated, you wrote how you felt fat, ugly, and unwanted. Uh, wait, before this, I just want to tell you that we walk two and a half thousand kilometers. Yes. He had the easier walk, by the way. But this was not that we, we chose that way. It was not that I that he chose the easy way. You know, the, the Great Wall of China start in Yellow Sea and finish in the Gobi Desert. So we we made this uh, division of male and female. So the female is the water. I start from the water. And the fire is the male. So start from the desert. And uh, it happened that uh, from the water, I got all the mountains and he got yes. all flat land. So yeah. that happened. So so, it wasn't then, very fair. <laughs> and then we meet in the middle, and that was the story. How did you recover? It was a very difficult moment in my life because, you know, before I always go back to my art, but this time art was together. So it was, I have to reinvent everything, literally to reinvent everything. The one thing that helped to me is to make the theater uh, the piece about from my life because I was thinking, what if I play the theater that I actually stage my life so that I can make some kind of um, division between me playing the life and I, through that playing my life I can liberate myself. It was better than psychotherapy. And I hate psychotherapy. I never do. So this was really important. And actually I did this and uh, really, really worked. And I for the the first biography, which I did because I made six of them, I actually staged um, also the moment of saying bye to Ulai and I invite Ulai with his new wife who's a Chinese and the baby and then on that scene I say to him you know bye bye Ulai and somehow I say him as a theater piece and it was very interesting because in early 70s I hated theater theater was the biggest enemy theater was people sitting in the dark the actors are playing some something which is not real the blood the, is ketchup the blood is ketchup <laughs> the knife is not the knife I mean all this stuff you know was fake but this time, you know, I developed my own language with performance, so I was okay with theater. You know, first you have to hate your parents in order to, to become independent. So it's the same with the theater. Now in theater, I love theater. It's all okay. And then I was thinking theater is way to go. So I actually, in the, in the also the piece, Ulai was played by his son, who he didn't even tell me to exist all this time when he was together, the second son. And he would look exactly like Ulai when I met him. So it was like a, some kind of mixture of theater and real life and real drama stage in a theater context. You have very candidly stated that you seem to always be trying to prove to everyone that you can go it alone, that you can survive, that you don't need anybody. And you go on to state that this is also a curse because you're always doing so much and at times too much. And because you have so often been left alone and without love. Do you still feel that way? I just fall in love recently. <laughs> but you know, it's I somehow 
there are lots of wrong men in my life. I, it looks like I oh, really honey, like... I understand. I really like... I always get guys with trouble and it's like, oh my God, and I have to save them or something and it's so bullshit and, and then I, you know... You've saved a lot of men. And then I fall in this pattern, you know, it's so important to... You know what is very important? How we choose the, the, the people? We choose them by the look, but we don't choose them by the... But what they really... By the content. You know, there was... A, I just want to tell you one funny experiment. In Germany, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was reading the Spiegel magazine. They took 30 men and 30 women, and they put them in two separate places. They undressed them naked, they blindfolded them, and they put them together. And they have to do... To touch each other and kiss. That's all. But they have to form the couples by the feeling without seeing. And then, and then they took the blindfolds off. An experience was incredible. 98% there will not be visual choice. Wow. So what do you think that means? That means that we never listen to the body. Body it's have its own knowledge and its incredible vice. We go for the visual and we go to the brain which is so fucked up generally and we don't go for the body. Body tells everything. The body creates chemicals which are really the, the, the proof of attraction. So this time I really went right, I think. Oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> I, I was so struck by how you realized you didn't love Ulai anymore when you no longer liked his smell. Oh, that's it. When you stop liking the smell, you see that's the what body is talking. We we never pay attention. Body have its incredible wisdom. I'm so happy that you're in love again. Um, in 2010, you created the artist is present in the atrium at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, wherein every day for three months you sat facing people for eight hours a day without moving, speaking, eating, or going to the bathroom. How did you mentally and physically prepare for this? I took one year. It's like preparing for the NASA program to go to space or something. I really took seriously. It took me one year. One important thing was how you can change metabolism of your body. I literally for one entire year had a breakfast in the same time, which was, you know, seven in the morning. And nev- not, never have lunch and never take any water till in the evening. And then night drink the water. So that was very important because, you know, when you, if I was sitting in the mama and lunchtime, you, your body automatically produces acids. And if you don't take the food, you know, you, your blood sugar go down, you feel Angry. sick, you, yeah. you, you get headache and it's all the, pro- the problem. It was very difficult for me just not drinking the water and drinking by night because by night I was so exhausted from the, from the sitting. Because it's eight hours a day and, and ten hours. Ten on Saturday, ten, right? No, Fridays. Friday, Fridays, right. ten is. And I made this terrible mistake but not putting the arm Arms. on the chair so that all my body sink in and my ribs go into the stomach and it's so hurting. But I understood that problem with arm already second day but I was too proud to, to I know and to I change. saw I looked at all the <laughs> um, ways that you when you and Ulai were sitting face to face with the there were always arms on the chairs and I didn't I didn't want to because look aesthetically better but then I was too proud to change and they kill me I really know. this was killing me but then you know it's you're so exhausted I mean you, you're pain all over and then in the night you have to have enough sleep and drink water all the time because it's the only time you drink the water and you know I never pee actually I know people were questioning, did you have a like trap door? And also I did, I, I built it. But then after second day, I just put the pillow because I knew I would never do it. Really, it's something that body just switch off. So that was the... 
Why did you take the table away? Initially, there was a table between you and the people that were sitting across from you. You know, first, there was three months, and I had three dresses. I took a blue dress, which I, you know, make, make somebody made for me, but I designed. So the first, the blue dress was to calm me down. The second month was red dress to really give me energy. And the third month was white dress for purity and calmness. And uh, I wanted to have a very formal situation, you know, table, two chairs. But then the second month came the man with the wheelchair. They, they moved the chair, they put the wheelchair. And because of table, I could not see even this man at the legs, what happened. And it, it was something that I understood that I actually don't have full contact because of the table. And then it took me all these two months to realize this. And then on the third month, I, when we finished second month, I asked to remove the table, which security museum didn't want because there was a kind of buffer between me and audience that was always freaking out about security. I didn't care. I wanted to be removed. And that moment when I removed, that month was for me was really performance took off completely to another level. 850,000 people stood in the atrium at MoMA, 17,000 on the final day alone. And you were there for everyone, whether they sat with you or not. I was there. It was an extraordinary thing to, to observe. The people sitting across from you were often visibly moved from the beginning. People were in tears. Um, do you feel that you became a sort of mirror? What what opened people's hearts as they were sitting across from you? You know, this whole thing is, I was thinking so much what happened about this piece. Because when I when I told it to Klaus Biesenhag, the curator, that I would do this work, because he actually gave the title to exhibition artist present, and he said, I wanted to have the, all the work which you're present, performance, video, photography, fine. But when he said that to me, it was so natural that I should be present there too. And uh, and he said to me, but, you know, this is museum, this is MoMA, and, you know, we are in New York, people don't have time, probably the chair will be empty most of the time. <laughs> I said, I don't care, I will just be there. And I was thinking, if I did this piece maybe 10 or 15 years earlier, I really believe that probably the chair will be empty. Really? You know why? The time was different. I think that because of technology, because how we develop, the ourselves that we depend so much on the, on the gadgets, the people don't even relations, the young couple will text messages, but they will not see each other. Something happened with the human contact. And I think that, that actually the public never have more need to be part of something and to have the time to actually experience what they experience, you know, with themselves. Like now we are facing enormous loneliness and pain and, it is so difficult, you know, and I never saw so much pain in my life than just looking at people and what they're bringing me. But I was there vulnerable. I was there all the time, unconditionally, give them love, and they can take as, as much time they want. And that was essential. This was something that we need now. So I understood that actually, you know, you don't need in the museum, we just look at something. But I think we need to be part of something. To connect. And that's happened. So here was interesting because audience was one-to-one, -one, but also the, all the rest. The waiting was part of the piece too. Sleeping outside was part of The commitment was part of the work. While you were doing the show, scientists in the United States and Russia became interested in what you were doing and wanted to test the patterns in brainwaves triggered by the mutual gazing and found that your brainwaves with your seated guests were syncing up and making identical patterns. Did that surprise you? 
you know, this was all new thing for me that, you know, that I can see how that actually the, the different centers of the brain develop. And this, which is the most amazing, the conclusion that in, in total silence, looking stranger, where you never speak one word, the subconsciously braid work in incredibly, like with full speed, that actually you can understand that person so much more than talking. Talking is like you're actually pretending or you're trying to make impression, but you, you just eyes at the real doors of the soul in the real sense. And it's incredible what happened there, you know. Total stranger, unconditional love. That's the key. And long duration. <laughs> I read that one thing you were very proud of was that you mastered the art of not sneezing. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> How did you do that? <laughs> this was something. Because, you know, there's dust, lots of dust. And there is the moments of that you're really going to burst in sneezing. And then you have to slow your breathing to almost zero. And then you pass that point. But it's so incredible and difficult. I have two last questions for you, Marina. The first is, you've said it's crucial to include death in your life now, and, and you think about death every single day. And I believe that inspired your thinking about the three Marinas. Can you describe who the three Marinas are? But before this, I want to just tell you that, you know how when you you develop yourself and start thinking about you as a persona, and also in relation to the public, so often you actually make one image to the public and then you have to try to keep that image and somehow that's the image the public get. But in meantime, you develop other things because we are so full of contradictions. Every human being have contradictions, but we are ashamed to expose them. Why? Why do you think that is? I, that's human nature. Nothing we can do about it, you know. And I was thinking how I can expose, especially I start with my theater piece, how I can expose things that I'm ashamed of to the to the public and share this with them. This is incredible liberation if you can do that. And then I start seeing what are these three marinas I have in myself that I like to show to the public and not to be ashamed of them and they have to take it. So the one is this... Uh, heroic marina really like i'm feeling like warrior i can go through the walls like my book is called you know walking through the walls because i never stop in the front of the wall i just see the wall get through that's it and there is next wall and so on and then this is the other one who is very spiritual really spiritual who go to the retreats long time in the forest and do kind of things who are really you know the lots of restrictions you know not eating for a long period of time not talking and so on and then comes the bullshit one. Oh, this one is a big deal. The one who really everybody tried to hide, and we all have the bullshit one, who love to, you know, if you give me a box of chocolate, I eat all of this, not one. <laughs> you like bad movies and shitty, you know, gossip stories. You go to the hairdresser and you read all the people magazines and every gossip you possibly say, oh, my God. You know, all these b things that you love, fashion and clothes, and you like this, and, you know, all the stuff that you actually do. As a heroic marina, you don't want to admit. But I like all three of them. This one you asked me in the beginning of this uh, conversation, if you don't want to answer certain questions, you don't. I don't have secrets. I write about them, and I like to expose to the public, and I like to share with the public. So if I can show you my bullshit, show me your bullshit, then we have real conversation. Absolutely. And I think you want to be buried now with three coffins, but no one's going to know which one you're in, either heroic marina, uh, spiritual marina, or bullshit marina. Yeah, we have this three coffin story. Actually, one is real body, and the other ones are not. But the three places I lived the longer, like what would be Belgrade, Amsterdam, and New York, 
And the important thing is have to be celebration of that. Because, you know, Sophie said beautiful things. Sophie said, you know, the life is a dream and the dead is waking up. But we are so afraid. The American culture is the worst. You're so afraid of dying. You, that, that is removed from you, like don't exist. I never forget. You know, I was in America in 80, I think it was four. I don't remember. The time when the shuttle with the teacher explode. Yes. I was in Boston in MIT. I remember and everybody was looking at this great moment. And then unbelievable. Nobody believed that actually is that there and everybody's gone. Yeah. So something that you really believe you're immortal and you believe you're, either, you're ever young. But, you know, bad news, we all, we're all going to die. So it's very important in, that in one point of your life you prepare for that exit. So that exit have to be a celebration. So I want it. All my friends come. Dirty jokes. I love dirty jokes. It's really my big thing. You know, it's like <laughs> politically not correct, especially to have the clothes not like like me in black, but all the vi the violent colors like acid green and blue and red and you know and and celebration of of you know. I have I had a difficult but great life, and that have to be great too. Marina, before I. Say goodbye. I was wondering if you could read one of your artist manifestos for our listeners. Okay, I need the glasses. So, manifesto is much longer, but you choose one page, so I'm going to read very dramatically this one. Wait. An Artist Life Manifesto by Marina Abramovich. An artist conduct in his life. An artist should not lie to himself of others. An artist should not steal ideas from the other artist. An artist should not compromise for himself in regards to the art market. An artist should not kill another human being. An artist should not make himself into an idol. An artist should not avoid falling in love with another artist. Too bad I did twice. An artist's relation to silence. An artist has to understand silence. An artist has to create a space for silence to enter his work. Silence is like an Iceland in the middle of a turbulent ocean. An artist's relation to solitude. An artist must make time for the long periods of solitude. Solitude is extremely important. Way from home, way from studio, way from family, way from friends. An artist should stay for long period of time at the waterfalls. An artist should stay for long periods of time at exploding volcanoes. An artist should stay for long periods of time looking at the fast-running rivers. An artist should stay for long periods of time looking at the horizon where the ocean and sky meet. An artist should stay for a long period of time looking at the stars in the night sky. 
Marina Abramovich, thank you for bringing your genius into the world. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you. To find out more about Marina Abramovich, her website is marinaabramovich.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.